after Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscience stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to, to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went on his way. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, my Lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, why do you listen when men say, David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord handed how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut it off. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, Amber. Peace be with you. Pray with me. Gracious Father, we thank you for this opportunity uh, to open up your word together as a family. I pray, Father, that you would speak to our hearts, minister to us, help us to see ourselves in light of your beauty and your glory. Help us, Father, to have our attention set on you for your namesake and glory. Thank you for our worship team um, who has been here since 6 a.m. this morning seeking to sing songs to you that would help your people to learn more about you and to experience you. Uh, we are so thankful for them. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, good afternoon. So glad to be with you all and to those who are listening on podcasts, who are sent ones uh, all around the world who listen week in and week out to hear an encouragement encouraging word of the Lord. Uh, we just want to say greeting as we continue our series today in the life of David. And today we'll be talking about astonishing mercy, a time to kill or not, a time to kill or not. A few years ago, uh, there's a pastor friend of mine who is uh, uh, older than me. We were on the phone talking during a, a season that was kind of just dark uh, for me in pastoral ministry. I remember just feeling that there was a sense in which uh, the church that I was pastoring just was under spiritual attack. It was blow after blow. And I 
begin to uh, just have doubts and uh, just just wonder about just Christian ministry and, and my calling. And I'll never forget talking to him and expressing this to him and him stopping and prophetically speaking in the middle of our conversation and saying to me, Jamal, if you are going to laugh in Christian ministry, you have to learn to appreciate the wilderness. You can't be afraid of the wilderness. You know, the wilderness is a theme that we see throughout the scripture. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sin and they, 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 they fall short of God's glory and his standards, they are sent into the wilderness. Moses, after he leaves Pharaoh's house goes into the wilderness. The children of Israel for 40 days, for 40 years is in the wilderness because of their rebellion. Jesus Christ, after he was baptized, is led by the Spirit to the wilderness. The wilderness, the desert is a lonely place. The desert is a hard place. The desert is a place of waiting. It's a place of pruning. It's a place of shaping. The wilderness is a place in which God does his work on us, and we find ourselves oftentimes in a state of confusion, a state of brokenness, in a state of wondering if God is even near. In the wilderness, we experience the wild one, Satan, trying to tempt us and discourage us and strip us. But what we learn today is that God does his best work on his people in the wilderness, and that even in our wilderness, he is present. Eugene Peterson rightly writes, the wilderness immersed David in beauty so profound that a cheap revenge was unthinkable. I love that quote. The wilderness immersed David in beauty so profound that cheap revenge was unthinkable. David was shaped in the wilderness. He was in the wilderness for at least, at least 10 years. We have 15 stories uh, in the life of David, which takes place while he is on a run as a fugitive from Saul, and Saul is trying to hunt him down. But I believe that the wilderness did something in the heart of David. And that's why David in this passage is able to have astonishing mercy on Saul. David is going to get an opportunity to murk him, to murder him, or take him out. When I say murk, I mean murder. That's how we talk in the hood. To, all right, that's a, to murk him, like murder him, right? Finish him. He has an opportunity to finish him, to take him out, and he does not take him out. And I believe the reason why is because God was doing something in his heart in the wilderness. David was used to observing hyenas and wildlife that probably once, that he once was afraid of. And now he's beginning to see the beauty in the most wildest of beasts. Perhaps that's what's happened here when he observes Saul. Saul is acting in a beastly way, in a, in a, in a way in which he's trying to take out David, who has done him no wrong. But David is learning to see the beauty in the most inhumane of people, the most harshest of persons. And the question that I have for us today and the question that the Holy Spirit was probing in my heart this week as I studied was, will I, will I be a person who is constantly growing in, in mercy? Will I allow the Spirit to shape my heart 
and get me to a place where I don't just do merciful acts, but where by God's grace and through his spirit, I am becoming a merciful person. My heart is overflowing with mercy. You know, just a couple of weeks ago, I made a large purchase and I talked to the salesperson. Uh, we were ending up, uh, it was late at night. They were getting ready to close. And he told me about putting insurance on the uh, item that I purchased. And he told me that to insure this item would cost about $40 a month. I wasn't ready to make a decision right then. I asked, could I call him back? He said, sure, not tomorrow, the day after tomorrow. I'll be back in the office. Just give me a call and I'll give you the same offer. Well, I call him a couple days later. We finally connect and he changed the price on me. Rather than $40 a month, he said it was $140 a month. To which I replied and said, have you lost your mind? <laughs> I'm thinking to myself, you must have slipped and bumped your head. It is no way I'm paying $110 more than what you told me it would cost. To which he began to apologize, and I didn't want to hear it. And in essence, uh, cut the conversation sh very short and sharp and hung up. And as I got off the phone and tried to go about my business, the Holy Spirit just convicted me of my harsh tone and how sharp I was with him. And the Lord was just working me. I'm like, man, I got to call this dude back. So I swallowed my pride. I called him back and I apologized to how sharp and, and, and rude I was to him, to which he accepted my apology and said, bro, I understand. I made a mistake. Um, I gave you a price that I thought was one thing when it was really another. And uh, that's my mistake. But I'm going to work with uh, my supervisor and see if we can get you uh, the original cause. But even though he right, may right the wrong, as I look back on that time, especially in light of the sermon, I just saw how quick and how easy it was for me to verbally want to kill someone <laughs> and bury them. And I look at David in this passage, and I'm just looking at how merciful he was to Saul. And I'm saying, Lord, all week, just been crying out to Lord, Lord, I don't want a persona of mercy. I can go through the steps and be merciful because it's the Christian thing to do. Lord, I want a heart that overflows with mercy. I want to get to a place, Lord, where I see things from an angle of being merciful, where that's my, my more natural bent and inclination. And I begin to pray and say, Lord, help me to get there. Help me to trust your spirit. And I'm just amazed that when I look at David, in 1 Samuel chapter 24 and how merciful he was. And if we're going to be merciful and grow in being merciful, we have to root ourselves in, in two realities that we see in this text. And the first is this. We need to root ourselves in God's will and not our desire or circumstance. Root ourselves in God's will and not our desire or circumstance. That's what we see happening here in the first seven verses of 1 Samuel 24. David has a desire to get even with Saul. And he also is given the proper circumstances to make that happen. David's men interpret this situation. They interpret the situation, verse 4, as God bringing things together in a way in which his enemy is now in his hands. They say, you have a desire, we have a desire, and we have the circumstance. This must be God's will. This has to be. I mean, David, we've been running for this man for, for years. 
You haven't been back home to check on your father, your brothers, and your mother for years because they've got people staked out at their home. We're living a nomadic life. We go to a town, we have to beg for resources and water and food. Finally, God has made this right. Finally, we get to kill Saul. I mean, it's almost a hilarious picture here. David and his men, they're hiding out in a, in a cave. The Bible says they're in the back of the cave. And Saul passed this cave with 3,000, notice what the text says, young and able men. He got quick, fast, rested warriors because he wanted to make sure he took David out. But on the way to search for David, Saul has to go and take a poop. It's pretty funny. My holy imagination, uh, Saul used that cave for his own personal restroom. <laughs> He's got 3,000 men with him. He's like, I don't care where y'all go, but y'all not going in this cave. This is a king's cave. And he goes in that cave, and he probably says, give me about 15 to 30 minutes. And then I just imagine when he's done taking a poop, he comes out of the cave and say, y'all going to need about 15 or 30 minutes before anybody else goes back in there. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Right? So Saul goes into this cave, and he relieves himself. And what's funny is he has no idea that his restroom is David and his men's hotel's room. And they say, man, you run back to David. You'll never believe what's happening. Paul, uh, Saul is catching a squat right now. He is pooping. And man, he is into it. This is the Lord's will for you to take him out. And what does David do? David goes, and instead of cutting his throat, he cuts a piece of his garment off as proof, as evidence that he could have killed him. He could have buried him, but instead he is being merciful. Who in your life is God calling you to be merciful to that you have every right in most people's eyes to bury? You know that coworker that's always bringing up what you have done wrong and is quick to report you to a supervisor or to, in a passive-aggressive way, remind you of how you failed? That person who themselves makes a mistake and you have that opportunity now to do the same to them. Are you going to kill them? Are you going to bury them? Or are you going to be merciful? Just because you have a desire to get even with someone and also you have the opportunity to, that does not equal God's will. Just because you have a desire for this person that you're dating and you have the circumstance in which you have an opportunity to show them how much you desire them and love them, that does not give you the, that is not God's will for you to sleep with them outside of marriage. Just because you're having a rough time in your marriage and things are at a, a rock low and bottom and you're ready to tap out and say, I'm done with it. And that New coworker comes in. It seems like God has just crafted that person for you. Y'all got the same interest. Conversation is easy. Doesn't mean that it's God's will for you to be with that person and leave your spouse. In fact, it's not. And how do we know that? We know that because of what God has revealed. And David, though he's given the circumstance and though he has the desire to take out Saul, he comes to his senses and he says, this is not God's will. And how does he determine that this is not God's will? 
It's because of his worldview. Verse 6, he said to the man, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. David says, it's not my job to remove this man from power. Why? Because he's my master. God has set him in a position of authority over me. He is the Lord's anointed. And David is saying, even though I have the desire and the opportunity, it's not my place. So I'm going to wait on the Lord. I'm going to wait. Waiting is tough, man. Waiting is hard. That takes, that takes supernatural power. You have an opportunity to end your running, to end this beef, and you don't. You have an opportunity to show this person up, to humiliate them. There will be songs written about you, about how you killed Saul when he was pooping. Like his whole administration will be embarrassed, but you don't take the opportunity because you say God has placed him in this place that is not my business to remove him. And David, the Bible says, after he just cuts his garment, he doesn't even kill Saul. He doesn't even murk him. He doesn't even take him out. All he does is take a piece of his garment. The Holy Spirit convicted him and his conscience came against him to the point that he went back to his men and he rebuked them. They're expecting him to come back with Saul's head like he came back with David's, with Goliath's head. But he doesn't come back with his head. He comes back with a piece of cloth and he is weeping. Why is he weeping? Because he touched the Lord's anointing. Because he took a piece of his robe. I found myself praying this week, Lord, give me a heart of mercy. A heart that says, not only do I not want to kill or, or bury someone, Lord, but, but give me that restraint through your spirit to not even want to touch their garment, to not, not even want to talk negatively in a way to someone else about them where that person's view of them is now skewed. Second, God's judgment, reality we need to root ourselves is in God's judgment is perfect and not to lean on our own flawed judgment, on our own flawed judgment. See this in verse 11 through the 15. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but then I kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. David has an opportunity to take him out. He doesn't. Saul leaves the cave, and I imagine he's getting himself together. Tells his men, don't go back in there. Uh, some died in there. Don't go back in that cave. And David comes out the cave. I mean, David literally was in a crappy position, right? He's poop jokes. I'm telling y'all, y'all gonna catch him. He comes out of the cave. He falls prostrate on the ground before Saul. He calls him his master, his Lord, and his father. He respects that position so much. He respects him so much. He gives him these names. He speaks 
kindly to them. And here's the thing about mercy. If we're going to grow to be merciful, being merciful does not mean that you don't speak the truth in love. Because David is about to confront Saul, and he's very upfront, very direct, but he does it in a respectful way. Like mercy does not mean not speaking the truth in love. It does not mean being passive or becoming passive aggressive. Mercy means you have an opportunity to kill someone, whether literally or with your words, and you choose not to. But the whole emphasis that David puts on Saul here and the thing that he's leaning in on is he says, Saul, I could have taken you out, but that's not my job. That's God's job. It's God's job to take you out. It's God's job to to remove you. It's God's job to, to bring justice, to avenge my name. And that's the same thing for us. We have to realize even when we have an opportunity to take someone out, that that's not what God has called us to do as Christians. He's taught us to be as gracious as possible while speaking truth to others. God is the ultimate judge. And we want to remind ourselves that our hearts are not perfect. It's like Play-Doh. My kids play with Play-Doh. One of my my daughters, she likes when she first gets Play-Doh. It's a great gift to buy, very cheap, right? You buy something for one kid, you don't know what to get the rest of the kids, just get them Play-Doh. They're happy every time. Bring Play-Doh home. One of my my daughters, she doesn't like the Play-Doh on the first day to be mixed with all the other Play-Doh, so she's trying to keep it over here, right? But sooner or later, all the Play-Doh colors begin to get mixed. It's kind of like our own hearts. Uh, We start out, we possibly think that we're right. We think that we see the situation best, but all of us, because we're flawed and because we're humans, um, there's some, some discoloring that happens. Sometimes we take things personal. Sometimes we see things through the wrong lens or with the wrong information. And that's why we ought to be careful. Proverbs 18, 17 says, the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. Oftentimes we state our case thinking that we're right, but upon further explanation or examination, we see that we're, we are not. And that's the reason why we should be merciful and slow to be judged, to realize that we are fallen creatures and we make mistakes. May the Lord give us a perspective that he gave David and that he gave Paul, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14. I love what Paul says. Alexander, Alexander the metal worker, did, a, did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You see what Paul does there? The Lord will repay him for what he's done. There's a perspective that says that God is the ultimate judge. Now, that doesn't mean we don't inspect, right? David is is doing judging here with a lowercase j. He is inspecting. Jesus tells us to inspect fruit. You shall know them by the fruit that you have. He also tells us to take the log out of our own eye before we try to take the speck out of someone else's. Galatians chapter 6, 2 through 4 tells us to to confront people, but to do it with a spirit of gentleness, lest we fall. There's an inspection. There is a lowercase judgment that happens. But to put ourselves or place ourselves over someone as the final judge, that's not our job to do. And to get back with someone in a revengeful way is never okay as a believer. So how do we have a heart of mercy? How do we grow in being merciful? What was interesting, even before I get there, is is how this chapter 24 ends. David confronts Saul. God used that confrontation in verses uh, 16 through 22 to actually humble Saul. 
And we'll see Saul actually going into a state of remorse. The reason I say remorse is because he's going to say all the right things. And then two chapters later, once again, he's chasing down David, trying to kill him. Listen to Saul's response, verse 16. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well. That's what mercy is. Being merciful is treating someone well who has treated you badly. Verse 18, you have just now told me about the good you do to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him go away unharmed? May the Lord reward you for all the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Then verse 21, now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. Verse 22, so David gave him an oath, this oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. So David is merciful. He lets him go. But he goes back into hiding into a stronghold because he's like, I still don't trust you. (laughs) What a picture here of of Saul coming to a place of of remorse as he realized the mercy that he has just received. And we are merciful to those who have done wrong to us with the hopes that God will bring them to see their lack of mercy. Believing that God actually controls their heart and that God is able to work on their heart in a way that is deeper and more meaningful than us berating them or trying to get even against them. So how do we grow in mercy? Well, Psalm 57 is a a fascinating song. And in this psalm, we see David is actually in hiding, fleeing from Saul in a cave. This this probably takes place uh, while David, uh, David probably writes this psalm while uh, these events are going on in 1 Samuel 24, Saul is chasing him. He writes a psalm about the experience. And what's amazing is, is that we get to see his heart while he's in distress on the run. But in this psalm, I think that there's five resources that we see that should help us to grow more merciful. And we're going to go through them real quick. And the first is this. The first is this, is if we're going to grow in being merciful, is we have to see the gift of supplication the gift of prayer, the gift of prayer. Verse one, verse two, have mercy on me, my God, have mercy on me for in you I take refuge. I would take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. I cry out to God most high, to God who vindicates me. So David prays to God. And what does he pray? He pray, Lord, have mercy upon me. This is my theory. My theory is that David is able to be merciful towards Saul because he has taken all that junk in his heart and given it to God. That in that moment, even though he desires to take out Saul, even though the circumstances are a lot for him to do so, he doesn't do so because he's worked out his anger, hurt, and frustration before the Lord. David has written 73 of the 150 psalms that we have. 14 of those psalms are what we call imprecatory psalms. These psalms are psalms of anger. These are David or another psalm uh, writer's aggression towards their enemy. They're very aggressive, very violent. David once prays, Lord, take my enemy's children and bash their heads against the stone. They're ugly. They're nasty. They're bloody. 
They're honest. They're raw. They're how you and me pray sometimes. Don't look at me like y'all don't ever air fight. Y'all know what air fighting is? Somebody upsets you, and in your mind, you're having a conversation with them, and you're like, oh, and then if they say, I'll say, or you're thinking back on it, like, oh, I should have said, ooh, next time, next time. And people looking at you and your lip kind of snarring going up. You okay, everything cool, bro? Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. I was just daydreaming. <laughs> right? Well, David is able to not harm Saul, I believe, is because he has taken his, his heart, those things that he wants to air fight over, and he's laid them at God's feet. And he has seen God's mercy towards him. So when he's in a situation and he can take out Saul, he's empowered by the Holy Spirit. He cuts his robe, and then the Holy Spirit works on him some more. And he says, man, even that was wrong. So my question for you is, are you using a gift, the resource of prayer, when someone wrongs you, when someone does evil against you, when someone is constantly nicking at you and, and, and showing your flaws after you confront them, as you confront them, before you confront them, have you taken it before the Lord and said, Lord, I am angry. I am hurt. I want to take them out. Would you give me the grace to love them? So Jesus tells us to do Matthew chapter 5. Tells us to, to love our enemy. Says if your enemy acts to go one mile, you go two miles with them, right? You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye, two for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist the evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your skirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go two miles with them. The only way that we're going to be able to love someone who is mistreating us the only way we're going to be able to love someone who is persecuting us is if we are finding our refuge in the Lord and if we've allowed God to work that stuff that's in us out of us. That's what David says here over and over. I will take refuge in the shadow of your rings. Just like he physically took refuge in that cave, David was emotionally and physically and spiritually taking refuge in the Lord daily. Second gift is the gift of sovereignty. Not only the gift of supplication, but sovereignty. Verse three, he sends from heaven and saves me, rebuking those who hotly pursue me. This is David on the run in a cave writing to the Lord. And he has a perspective of God that says, God is going to protect me. He is the reason I'm still standing and I'm still here. Look at what he says. He said, he sends from heaven and saves me. He sends help. He rebukes those who hotly come after me. Now, David could have had a different perspective and said, God is not for me. God is not sovereign. This situation is too big for God. I need to take revenge and to take care of it myself. But that's not what he says. He says, no, God is able. He looks back over his life and over his time with Saul, and he concludes that the only reason that I've escaped and made it this far is because God is on my side. Three times Saul tried to take me out with a spear, but I'm still here it's because God sent help from heaven. Once he sent some assassins to get me, and I got lowered down a basket. The reason I escaped and made it out and was able to be lowered to that wall in just the nick of time is because God was for me. He gave me a promotion and put me on the front lines of a war in the hopes that I would die. 
but I'm still here because God was for me. The same is true for you. If we're going to be merciful, it's because we understand that God is for me and he is sovereign and he is able to avenge me. He is able to protect me. Third, the gift of God's steadfast love. Verse three, he sends from heaven and saves me, rebuking those who hotly pursue me. God sends forth his love and his faithfulness. See, a lot of times when we find ourselves in a situation where we want to get mercy, uh, when we want to get revenge on a person, what we really want for them is respect and love. What we want from them is affirmation that they hurt us, that they did us wrong. Many times what we're seeking is security and identity. We feel that because of the way they're treating us, either we are afraid, either we overcome with our own sense of guilt and shame, But what we need most during those times is to remind ourselves that that person does not define me. That person not forgiving me does not define me. That person not understanding me does not define me. What defines me is God's love. What defines me is that God is faithful and that he is for me. And what you need in the midst of your situation where you want to get revenge back with that friend or perhaps with your spouse in that moment when you like, oh, no, you ain't called me out on that just yesterday. I know you ain't talking. What's going to satisfy you most is not you showing them up so that you can receive respect and love because that's what you're fighting for. That's what we're fighting for. What's going to satisfy you most is remembering that God perfectly loves you. If that person never respects you or understands you, you have the capability by the power of the Holy Spirit to be whole. Fourth, the gift of selflessness. The gift of selflessness. As David is on the run, as he's fleeing from Saul into a cave, I'm amazed at how selfless he is. I mean, this is astonishing. Like, I wouldn't write this if I'm in a cave on a run for multiple years because somebody's trying to kill me. I'm just telling you now, it would be a work of the Holy Spirit to get me to say what we're about to read. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be all over the earth. Mm -mm. Verse 9, I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. I will sing of you among the people. Help me, Holy Spirit. Verse 11. (laughs) Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be all over the earth. This flabbergasted me this week. That while David is in the cave on the run, separated from his family and friends, his reputation is being marred by Saul and his men. He is praying that God's glory will fill the earth. He said, Lord, even though I've been stopped, even though my dreams are on hold, Even though I I don't understand this, you're God and you are beautiful. And I pray that the nations would come, that the nations would come to know you. Oh, that God would break our hearts, soldier. Oh, that he would be merciful to us to give us a God-centered perspective when we realize that life is not about us, when we come to a place of being able to trust him, that even the stickiest, nastiest of situations can be a part of his will and can bring him glory. 
Oh, that he would help us to get out of our, our cave, to get out of that moment, to get out of that day, to get out of that struggle, to get out of ourselves and to be able to look up and to say, God, you are glorious. You are beautiful. You are mighty. Would you save the nations? I still want them to know you, even though I don't understand you, even though I feel like you're afflicting me. You are good. Because when I want to revenge, when that fool, whoever that fool is, I don't have anybody in mind, just so you know, (laughs) is tapping on my last nerve. It's hard to think about God's glory. It's hard to think about the nations, the lost coming to know him. But through the power of the Holy Spirit as we, dwell in God's presence as we take time daily to spend with him, to pray, to get in his word, to practice solace and solitude, to entrust ourselves to him. The Holy Spirit, remember we talked about the fruit of the Spirit. He is cultivating a heart of kindness, a heart of grace, a heart of mercy, a heart of long suffering. This is not something that you can do in your own strength. This is a supernatural power that happens. And here's the good news. If you are in Christ and if you abide in him and his words abide in you, you will bear this fruit. Here's the bad news. It's going to hurt. You're going to be pruned. You're going to be shaped. You're going to be placed in really hard situations that you don't understand. You're going to want to tap out, but here's the good news. You have a helper that is working within you and on you, and you have a family and community that is speaking truth to you. And you have a God who loves you and who is for you. And here's the better news. Even though you may not understand it now, as my grandmother used to say, you'll understand more by and by. The Lord will give you the grace to look back on your wilderness experience and say, that hurt like crap then. But oh, did it make me strong. Oh, did it make me wiser? What Satan meant for evil, God meant for the good, and now God is using my test as my testimony. Finally, the gift of satisfaction. That's what David has here. The gift of praise. The gift of worship. The gift of exhortation. Even in the cave, even in a crappy situation, David is able to take his eyes off of himself through the power of the Holy Spirit, place his eyes on God and realize that my greatest satisfaction is not found in Saul not existing. My greatest satisfaction is not found in me becoming king. My greatest satisfaction is found in communing with God and him giving me a peace that surpasses all understanding and he will do it. I'm a living witness. He will do it. It may feel like you're playing hot potatoes, passing hot potatoes, but you just keep passing it. Sometimes God, you give that burden to God. It's like he gives it right back to you. Give it back to him. He gives it to you. You give it to him. He gives it to you. But sooner or later, he'll take it from you and he'll give you a peace that the world don't know and the world can't understand. And that doesn't come easy. That's what we see in verse seven. My heart, oh God, is steadfast. My heart steadfast. I will sing and make music. Awake my soul. David is talking to his soul. Get up. Wake up. 
Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. I will sing of you amongst the people. For great is your love. He roots it in his love, reaching the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches the sky. And I'm telling you, we've got even greater, greater reason to praise God than David had. We've got even a greater reason to worship God than David had. And the reason we have it is because we know have a very particular way in which God has loved us through his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension, and his placement on the right-hand side of the Father. We can sing to our souls and say, get up, because I know you love me, God. How do I know you love me? Because you gave your very best for me over 2,000 years ago, and now there's no reason for me to be afraid. There's no reason for me to be ashamed. You, Father God, have not only forgiven me, but you lavish your love upon me. You say, I am yours. And even when I fail to be merciful, you are merciful to me for my past, present, and future sins. You love me. And they don't stand against me or before me. Listen, David is not the hero. Because in the next chapter, there's a man by the name of Nabal. David and his men are hungry, sends a messenger, tell Nabal that David is here and we need to eat. Nabal is a wealthy man. And that's he's like, man, can you fix some famous days for me? Can you barbecue for me? And Nabal is like, I don't know David like that. Tell David I said no. David hears that. The Bible says he went and got his sword, got his men, said, hey, let's go. We, we taking this fool out. You know, that's Nabal's name. And the Hebrew it literally means fool. He gets his men. They are headed to take him out. He talks to Nabal. Uh, uh, then Abigail, Nabal's wife, intercedes, <laughs> mediates for him. And Nabal lives, at least for 10 days. Go read the story. <laughs> but here's what's amazing. Abigail interceded for David. David, who was merciful, there's one chapter before, it's not merciful when someone says, no, I won't cook for you. That's the human heart. That's the human experience. <laughs> but here's the good news. Jesus is our greater Abigail. We are Nabal. We are the fool. We're the foolish one. God's wrath should have been poured out on us, but Jesus took his wrath for us. He allowed himself to bear all of God's wrath that was reserved for us so that we could live freely as if we were wise. And every Sunday when we gather together, we remind ourselves of the grace of God for the foolish. Take a meal together called communion. This meal reminds us that the body of Jesus was broken for us and that the blood of Jesus was shed for us. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke and said, this is my body broken for you. He took a cup and said, this is a new covenant in my blood shed for you. As often as you eat this bread, Christian, and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Here at Sojourn, we take a piece of bread, we dip it in wine or juice. The wine is marked by twine, whatever your conscience permits. Christian, as you take this meal today, I pray that as you touch the texture and you dip it in the juice or wine, and as you taste of the wine or the juice that you would remember that the Lord is good, that he is merciful, that he is for you, 
and that he can empower you to be merciful just as he is. If you're not a Christian, we're going to ask you not to take this meal. My prayer is that you would take Christ. And you may think in your own strength, like, yeah, I can be merciful. I can be kind. I can be all those things. But it's impossible for you to be that way in a way that, God, in a way that pleases God. You can be kind and you can be merciful. But the supernatural mercy that we're talking about is a mercy that even when mercy for a kind, ultimately we don't take credit for because we realize that it, it was only by the grace of God. And that grace is only experienced in the personal work of Jesus Christ. So come to Christ. Let's pray.